this is Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm here today by myself as Bliss is enjoying her time in Hawaii, uh, well-deserved for her. So it will just be me today. You can find me at birthinginstincts.com is my website. You can find uh, me at Instagram at, at birthinginstincts. Facebook on drstuespodcast.com or drstuartfishbinobgyn. And uh, my new uh, Rumble channel is, my tag name is Birthing Instincts, and you can find some videos I post there. I post all of these um, podcasts that I'm doing now through Zoom will be up on rumble.com, uh, tag name Birthing Instincts, so you can find us there. Thank you for joining us today. I am going to be, like I said, I'm going to be reading comments, admitting people to the room, doing all that stuff myself today. So bear with me as we go along. I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Bliss because she deserves a vacation. I'm wearing her t-shirt that she got me last time she was on vacation down in, uh, where was this? Costa Rica, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Bliss. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, got a lot of stuff to get to today. Um, I called it a flight of ideas on my, on my preview because my brain is everywhere. A lot of things are going on and we missed last week because we read a twin delivery. We're going to talk about three sets of twins that were born in the last week and a half. And we'll get to that as well. I'm going to give a COVID vaccine update for pregnant people. And uh, I've got a lot of things to talk about. I just, I did notice that on Instagram, which is fun for me to um, follow along to see what attracts people. And when I put, put a meme up for the podcast, you know, maybe I'll get 50 People, but if I put a picture of a baby up or a picture of a pregnant woman up, I get hundreds. So I've decided to uh, tease people now by using pictures of twins or pictures of breeches or pictures of babies, and then and the second picture putting the meme up so I attract more people. It's an interesting thing that I found uh, recently. I've also had a series of tech snafus. I'm sure that many of you have had the same sort of thing today. I couldn't balance my checkbook today. Um, uh, there were, there, you know, uh, I had a credit card that was hacked this week. Um, I really do long for a simpler time, but uh, I don't know. We're actually never going to go back there. Uh, the first thing I wanted to start out with, though, was what I was going to get into last week, which was the title of last week's podcast was going to be No Power in Yes. And the reason that I say that, which is a very provocative thing to say. And I was listening to another podcast and the man hosting the podcast was quoting somebody and he, the question was asked to him, why do governments never get smaller? Why do organizations never get rid of rules? Why don't the, why doesn't the legislature in your city or state um, go through rules that are obsolete and get rid of them as opposed to creating new ones all the time? And the answer the man gave was that there is no power in yes. And what that means is if you say yes to somebody who wants to do something, like I want to start a business and the, and the city council says, okay, go ahead, all right? You have no power over them. But if you say no, you have to get an environmental impact statement and you have to get a, um, a permit and you have to do this and you have to pay these inspectors and you have to do that. They have power over you. Okay, think about it though. When was the last time, you know, I mean, why do rules and policies and things never shrink? And so when was the last time that they, that you ever heard of a law that's been redacted? Or when was the last time 
that um, that a hospital policy was said, you know what, this this policy was f- foolish. Let's get rid of it. All right. Let's let's just say that we made a mistake and, and take it back. All right. They don't they don't do that. All right. They create more and more policies that eventually come back to bite them in the ass. There's a Hebrew saying called uh, Eretz Ochelet uh, Yoshvacha, which means a land that eats its own. And this is what happens when you get when you get um, these big, bigger and bigger entities controlling things. And this is where we're at right now, where um, the individual has very little power. And uh, when when an organization or a person or a group says yes to somebody, it, it supports the little guy, right? But there's no power in supporting the little guy. And it's led us to a, a problem. And I'm not even talking politically because, you know, listen, I'm trying to avoid uh, getting into politics too much. But I'm talking about um, how it affects pregnant women and women in labor and all the things that we're going to talk about today. They all sort of have a relationship to this idea that there's no power in saying yes to somebody. We're going to always say no to somebody. And the first story I'd like to start out with is um, a client of mine named Eva who had a, um, who got to 41 and two sevenths weeks a week, uh, a couple weeks ago now. And um, she developed, she was a VBAC and she developed hypertension, pretty high blood pressures, 150 over high nineties. And at that point at 41 and two sevenths weeks, she, there was no signs of labor. So we thought we would, excuse me while I keep admitting people here. Um, so we thought that we would um, transfer her care to a, a hospital for, induction. All right. But the question is where to go. And I called around to my usual suspects and I found that Dr. Javira, who usually will help me, was unable to do it because the VBAC rules at his hospital were such that he would have had to been there the whole time that that she was in labor. And that's untenable for a physician for what they're going to get paid to have to be there when they're coming in for an induction, which could take six hours. It could take 26 hours. But the hospital has a rule that if they're doing a VBAC, then you have to be there, which makes no sense, of course, because they have a hospitalist, all right? And they have anesthesia. So if they're worried about the small, tiny risk of, of uterine rupture that's catastrophic, they have people there that could deal with it anyway. But no, they have a policy in place, which makes the option of a VBAC much less tenable to any physician who's, who, who wants to actually support it. Why do they do that? I don't know. Every hospital's got its own reasons. Uh, somebody not practicing medicine generally comes up with these sorts of things. And uh, it interferes with the choices and options that truly belong to the well-informed woman and are supported by most of the organizations uh, out there. So what he suggested is I go to another, uh, take her to another doctor who happened to be on call at another local hospital, and I'm gonna give the names of these, these hospitals because this one did a really good job for her. It's California Hospital near downtown Los Angeles. And the physician on call there was Tony Pickett who actually was a colleague of mine when we were residents together. I think I was a few years ahead of him, but I knew him from Cedar Sinai when, when back years and years and decades ago, actually. And he took really good care of her and he stayed over his shift to take care of her. And the, she did not want Pitocin and he did a sweep and he did an AROM. And she actually got a successful VBAC in the hospital. But what's really interesting was when I spoke with her about it, this is what she sort of said to me. She said, the first nurse she had was unbelievably supportive. 
And then of course, change of shift comes along. And this is always something that's been a, a pet peeve of mine is that, you know, you may finally develop a relationship with somebody and then 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. comes along and suddenly um, you have to create a whole new relationship with somebody who may or may not uh, jive with you. Anyway, the new shift nurse came on and she kept saying no, no, no to everything that Eva wanted. Um, you know, can I, can I be unmonitored? No, no, no. Can I, can I eat? No, no, no. Can I do all the things that the other nurse was letting her do the, the, the second nurse was that. So there was no consistency there, but why was she saying no? The other nurse said yes. So why was she saying no? All right. Is it, was it her training? Was it her anxiety? Was it her fear? I don't know. So then um, she gives birth to the baby and the NICU, the NICU team comes to the birth and I can't even remember why that was. And the NICU doctor says the baby must be observed in the NICU. And <laughs> Eva says, no, 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 that's not gonna happen, all right? And the doctor said, when she's delivering, the doctor says, you must be on your back, all right? And we want, and, and uh, then they ask for longer delayed cord clamping and that was a no, no, no. And, so either Eva has to say no, 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 or, or the doctors or the, the, the hospital staff are saying no, no, no. Why are they saying that? Why is it not letting a woman labor? And if a problem arises, we'll deal with it. Why is everything preemptive to the point where it's restrictive and leads to the model, which we've all talked about many times, which leads to all these interventions and a less likely chance of success because you're not following the options of mammalian birth. Um, I don't know, but she ended up having a successful VBAC and she had a great experience with some of the nurses and, and she loved Dr. Pickett. And I wanted to give a shout out to him for, um, for staying and getting her her, her VBAC. Um, she ended up, I think, getting mag sulfate um, because I think that she might've, they might've thought that she had preeclampsia, but um, she was home in two days and, and did great, all right? Another, another thing where the, where the people are saying no to you, which doesn't make any sense to me, is I do a lot of ultrasounds for some of the midwives locally. Um, and they'll bring their husbands to my office and it could be a 20 week scan, but most likely it's later in pregnancy, I'm doing a consult and it's like 36 weeks or their breach consult and I'm doing an ultrasound and the husband is seeing his baby on ultrasound for the very first time because the maternal fetal medicine offices or the hospitals, wherever they're doing their other scans, do not let the fathers in the room. And I've talked about this a lot, but th this makes absolutely no sense to me, all right? The father lives with the woman, all right? The father is important for the pregnancy. The father is not non-essential personnel. And yet someone is saying no to, to letting him in the room. What, what's the point? I mean, the tech that's in the room is exposed to people all day long. She goes out to lunch. She goes home to her family. Um, she may go shopping at Ralph's. She may do all these other things that people do. And it's okay for her to come and go from the room and see all different people all day long, but the husband is not allowed in, okay? In the hospital, I mean, a woman laboring, no visitors are allowed, all right? At this point, we kind of know what's risky, what's not risky. Um, why do hospitals still have these policies in place? I don't know. I don't know. Um, somebody thinks it's a good idea, but they're, but they're short-sighted in what they're thinking because, because ultimately they're missing, the, they're missing the bigger picture, which is 
putting safety uberalis or putting safety above all serves no purpose. And actually what it does is it, is it, it damages other things. Look what the lockdown has done. I mean, look what the lockdown has done to businesses, to suicides, to depression, to school children, all these things in the name of safety. And you're saying, no, you can't do this. And no, you can't do that. And this is what, this is, there's a power in that. And I'm not saying that in every case, it's something to do with a power or a control or a, an ego thing, but a lot of times it is. And I'm just bringing this up on the podcast so that people will think about this and maybe ask questions, ask your institutions, ask them, you know, why do you have this rule? And they'll often say for safety. And then you just argue with them and say, well, it's really not safe, is it? It's not any different than anything else. Um, anyway, that's Eva's story. And again, I like to say that saying yes supports the little guy. And we should be saying yes more often, especially in our profession. Uh, I got a call this morning from a, mid a local midwife just on the, on the COVID thing, um, that she has a client who's near term, whose husband and the, and the woman are very, very cautious, working from home, have, you know, wear masks at all their visits. Uh, they don't even want to come to the office. She's been going to their home for visits. Um, and the husband comes down with COVID. So they did everything that they were supposed to do Sorry about that. They did everything they were supposed to do and he got COVID anyway. And it's like, yeah, it's a virus. This is what happens. All the precautions in the world don't necessarily make any difference. As a matter of fact, you know, the CDC says 70 to 80% of people who catch COVID have been following all the rules of the lockdown and mask wearing and all that stuff. So I'm one of those people that trust the immune system. And we'll talk a little bit later about, about vaccines um, and what kind of information we have on that. But I think that if you are somebody that gets sick a lot or have an underlying illness, that, that being really careful makes a lot of sense. But for people who have a strong immune system who don't get really sick from the flu very often or, or in regular years, um, having living a life in, in fear. See, I'm, I have this, right now I'm having this huge flight of ideas and I do this when I don't have bliss to bounce my things off of because my mind just bounced to a, a video I watched of, of uh, Marianne Williamson, who talked about fear being, you know, the opposite of love, just like dark is the opposite of light. And the way she, the way she described it is that dark is not a thing. Dark is the absence of a thing. And so she compared that to fear as not really being a thing. It's, it's the absence of love. All right. It sounds very, very Marianne, Marianne Williamson like, but she's right. If you fill your if you fill yourself with love and joy and um, have a support system and surround yourself by a tribe that you that you like, all right, there's very little room for fear to come into it. But if you um, work in a system where there's where there's some advantage to being fearful because it gives you a power, a sense of power, a sense of control, it's, it's very dark. And, and I'm afraid that that's where we're headed. And I've watched the news over the last few weeks going on. And it just seems like with the power of big tech and censorship and things like that, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to fill ourselves with or surround ourselves by like-minded people if like-minded people are going to be shut off 
um, from the internet or from, from access. So, um, well, there's that. Okay. So, and, and then um, I've had a the good fortune of having a medical student with me for the past three weeks from um, Chicago Med. Uh, I don't get medical students very often, so I really enjoy having, having her. And she is interviewing now for residencies because she's a fourth year medical student. And so she had an interview over here at Cedar sinai the other day. I said, how did it go? And she said, it, it went well. And I said, so what did you think? And she, uh, what did you think of the, of the facility? She says, oh, we don't get to go to the facility. It's all done virtually. And I, I looked at, I thought for a second, I said, what? You're in Los Angeles, Cedar sinai is right there. You might be wanting to spend the next four years there as a resident, and they're not gonna let you see the physical plant. They're not gonna let you meet some of the residents face-to-face and have a conversation with them that isn't sort of supervised. They're not, you're not gonna be able to, you know, see how, where you park your car and, uh, and all the things that are important when you're, when you're a resident. No, no. And I'm sure they're doing it because they think it's safer, but how is it safer? How is it safer to, you know, they're meeting people all day long from walking in from the street all day long. Here's a medical student who, who may want to do her residency at your institution. And it's not just Cedars, by the way, I'm not picking on Cedars because all her, all her interviews across the country have been virtual. Uh, maybe I'm just old fashioned, but, but when I interviewed for residencies, I didn't interview for that many of those. I think I went to five or six places, but I went to the places you get to, you get to meet with the faculty, you get to meet with the residents, they give you a tour, you, you get to sit in on a grand rounds. Um, this is, this is how, how you make a decision. And this is a huge decision. This is a life-changing decision of where you end up uh, choosing to do your residency and where you end up matching. So like a lot of you probably don't even know how the match works. So it's a very fascinating thing. What, what, what happens is, is that all fourth year medical students around the country pick their subspecialty that they wanna go into and they interview at the different residency programs and then they rank them one through however many they interviewed at, one through 10, one through 20, one through five, whatever. And then all the residency programs rank the people that they've interviewed, one through 100, one through whatever. And it goes into a computer and on the third Wednesday of March, at one o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, which would be like 10 o'clock in California, um, all fourth year medical students get an envelope that tells them where they're gonna be spending the next four years. And for me, that was life-changing because I matched at my, my third choice, which was California. Um, had I matched at my first choice, which was the University of Colorado, think how different my life would have been. My second choice was actually University of Iowa, all right? Now, why would I pick Iowa? Well, I picked it because I went there. I liked the program. They had, they had really good people there and I felt comfortable there. But how do you know? Because they're, they're saying, no, you can't come. No, 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 all right? For a, life, a major life decision, just right, you know, you can tell that it obviously bothers me. Okay, um, so here's another thing that, that I, I saw recently. The, um, I got an email from the LA Midwives Group that said that the Board of Registered Nursing has decided that all CEU courses must, starting next year, include a section on implicit bias, okay? So I didn't exactly know what implicit bias means. I thought, I think I had a, a guess of what it meant, but I wasn't exactly sure. So I looked it up and it's uh, an unconsciously held belief of set of associations about a social group 
uh, synonym sort of to stereotyping. So now all the CEU courses are going to be politically correct and have a section on implicit bias. So, you know, what does implicit bias have to do with teaching breach or suturing? Um, where do the where do the people come off saying that? I mean, again, this is this is a power thing, all right. Now there is a, there is obviously bias, and certainly uh, uh, minorities have had poor access and have uh, worse outcomes. But what does that have to do with mandating it being in every CEU course? All right. I don't know whether this is something that's actually. I mean, it. it I, I trust the person who sent it. So for all the CNMs and things who take courses, they're gonna to have to be taking courses about, say they wanna take a course from me on breach delivery, am I gonna now have to, in order to offer them CEUs, am I gonna now have to talk about breach delivery in minorities? I mean, is, is there a real difference for me? No, all right? So I don't really understand it, but I understand the power of saying no, all right? And because there is no power in just saying to people, take whatever course you want, you know? I mean, it's always been that way. And then of course, when in the medical field, when the American Board of Medical Specialists started to make board certification something that happened yearly, the idea of taking any course you wanted to, like a course, like when I was early in my career, I took a course on uh, wilderness medicine, all right? It was great, but now, if I had to take those courses in order to satisfy my American board requirements, I wouldn't be able to waste my time taking that. I'd have to take what they decided I would take. So as I said at the very beginning, every one of these big organizations, whether it's big government, big tech, big organizations, big, big hospitals, whatever, they keep making more and more rules. They keep encringing on our freedoms more and more, all right? They should, I mean, we went through medical school, we went through residency, we come out and suddenly they, and they don't seem to trust us to make decisions that benefit what we want. They still wanna control every aspect of what we do. Um, drives me, it drives me uh, uh, well, you, you've seen me, <laughs> you guys know me, okay. So here's, an, here's another thing that's completely, uh, completely different from um, those things, but it's the same sort of thing. Sadly, one of my midwife colleagues uh, had a woman who had a fetal demise at about 28 weeks. And the woman did not want to go to the hospital. So she called me and asked me, you know, what's the best way which she could help the woman have this baby at home? We talked about using mesoprostol. And stuff, and so she ended up delivering the baby at home, and it was a beautiful baby. And and it, you know, there was no real reason why it, it had a nuchal cord times one, and the baby was. It, it hadn't. It had died recently, but had no anomalies. And so she's filling out the death certificate, right? And it says um, she asked me what she should put down for the cause of death, and I said put down unknown. All right. So here's what she wrote me. She said, the health department doesn't like the cause of death is unknown. Got anything else I could put down? She said, I asked the guy at the mortuary what he normally sees and he said, they usually say nuchal cord. Just let that hover out there a little bit. And she goes, ha, nuchal cord is so wrong. Sick that it's more accepted than unknown. 
Is oxygen deprivation a choice? Maybe just want to make sure it's a safe choice and that they can't come back and say, how do you know that? That's why unknown is the correct answer. It's almost that they want you to lie and make something up so they can check a box and move on. I couldn't have said it better myself. Truth is not a value to bureaucrats and leftists. This is, this is not me talking. This is, the, this, is the, this is the midwife talking. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, she's, I, I wouldn't give myself enough credit to call her a disciple, but that's exactly what it sounds like. Truth is not a value to bureaucrats and leftists. They just want the box filled and move on because the answer to the question of why did the baby die is unknown. It didn't die because it had a nuchal cord, all right? You all know that 40% of babies born vaginally have a cord around the neck at least once, sometimes twice or more, right? It is not a cause of fetal demise. Cord compromise can be, but how do you know? You don't know. I mean, by the time you see it, it's clotted off. So the whole cord is clotted, everything's clotted. So you have no way of knowing. So the truest answer is unknown, but to a bureaucrat, that's a no. You can't say that. We need you to say what we want you to say or, or make something up. We don't care if it's accurate. We just want you to make it up. I just had a thought. This made me flash back to when I was a, let's see, I was pre-med. So this was a long time ago. And I was looking at an option of going to the military uh, to pay for my medical school. And this was back in the, when was this? probably mid to mid to late seventies dating myself, but that's fine. Proud of my age, by the way, I'm 64. So, you know, it's one of those things I don't qualify for the 60. I, I qualify as a medical professional, but I'm just laughing that, that I see everywhere now that if you're 65, you can get the vaccine. All right. But if I'm 64, I can't. So this is none of those other artificial numbers that, that I've talked about many times about when something's a perfectly even number and you know that they've just made it up. All right. Anyway, so in the military, um, I went for an interview with a recruiter and he asked me a question. I'm in college. Okay. He asked me a question if I ever smoked pot. All right. And I said, well, yeah. And he goes, oh, oh, well, do you feel like you were coerced into doing it? And I go, no. Um, so I can't really do comments today, people. So I'm, I will respond to comments uh, separately later because it's just me. So he said, uh, did you feel like you were coerced? And I said, no, um, no, but I don't do it very often, but I did it. He says, oh, well, what, can we just say that you were coerced into doing it? And I didn't really know how to respond to that. I, 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 in my mind, I was thinking, hmm. I'm being truthful and I want to join the military. He would prefer that if I join the military, that I lie and then I qualify to join the military. Hmm. I don't think the military was for me. And that like the decision of where I matched was also a life changing decision <laughs> because I didn't end up uh, going into the military for four years. You, they, they had a really good program back then. They'd pay for four years of medical school and you gave them four years of of service in return as a med as an officer um, in medical thing, which I thought was, you know, pretty good deal. Although my medical school was really cheap anyway. So, but had I gotten into one, you know, we didn't have it. My family didn't have any money. So had I gotten into one that was expensive, um, it might've been a better deal, but 
they wanted me to lie. Okay. And I wasn't going to do that. I just, and I felt like, Jesus, you want somebody in the military to tell the truth, don't you? Wouldn't you want the most honest people doing that sort of thing? Well, I guess not. All right. So again, and, and people, people these days, and we've all seen it now, if, we, if, we, if we're aware of anything that's going on, is there the fear of speaking up or speaking out? If you work for an institution and you and they have a policy of doing something and you want to offer something different to your client, you are potentially going to get in trouble for doing that. So you follow the party line. You're afraid to speak out. Politically, if you speak out and, or if you have the wrong politics, you can actually lose your job or not get hired. But even if you're working and it's not a political thing, but you're, you, you have an opinion that's different from the algorithm or the policy that that the, that, that institution wants, you're, you're, you, you feel very inhibited about speaking out about it, okay? So some people ask me, why do I not feel inhibited? And well, look at it, it got me in trouble when I was uh, working at a hospital and I spoke out in, on behalf of my clients. Um, they eventually were not gonna renew my privileges, all right? It had nothing to do with bad outcomes. It had to do with the fact that I wasn't towing the party line. The reason I can speak out now and the reason I do this podcast and hopefully will continue to be able to speak out is that I'm self-employed. So the only one who can fire me is me. I'm my own boss. And I'm small. All right. And sometimes being small is an advantage. Not always, not often, but sometimes it is. Sometimes you can creep in under the radar. Um, you know, when you're small and like in the, in, in the military, when you fight guerrilla warfare, you know, you, the only way to fight a guerrilla warfare against the big army is to be small and you can, you can sneak in, you can sneak out, you can do certain things. You know, the American Revolution was essentially small against big and small one because they were able to, they didn't follow the rules of warfare. They didn't stand in line and, and you know, march all together. They, they, they stuck around. And so uh, I feel really comfortable being able to uh, say the things that I think, um, staying away from politics, of course, but staying the way that the way it thinks about healthcare and about medicine and about obstetrics in general and about the way patients are treated and informed decision making and 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 respecting autonomy and decision making, um, because I'm self-employed. You know, I have many colleagues um, who work for an institution who aren't allowed to do things differently, and they're stuck doing things that they know they shouldn't be doing, but they don't have any choice. Um, one of the things that happened this week was that I was talking to some people about the COVID vaccine and they told me that their doctor <coughs> told them that they should definitely get the vaccine. Okay. And I'm just thinking to myself, why would they say that? I mean, these are the same people that recommend that women who are pregnant in the third trimester get the flu shot and get the uh, Tdap shot because that's what ACOG says. And they, but they say it with such certainty. And with the COVID vaccine, there's, you know, there's absolutely no certainty because nobody knows. I'm not saying it's bad and I'm not saying it's safe and I'm not saying it's unsafe. But when a doctor tells a pregnant woman, oh, you should definitely get the vaccine with such certainty, I always wonder like, are they, I mean, why do they think that way? Are they, are they towing the party line? Are they, are they just, you know, they, they, do they trust 
these big institutions like government and big pharma and all that stuff so implicitly that they think it's perfectly safe. Why aren't they being more open about their, their ability to say, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. There's no data. There's absolutely no data on that. All right. If I were you, I probably wouldn't get it in the first trimester for sure. All right. The second and third trimester, there is no data. So I would look at your individually and look at your risk factors and look and decide, you know, are you in a, in a higher risk group? Maybe then you, you could get it. Maybe the risks outweigh the benefits then. But to say, to say it to a woman that she should say, you should definitely get it. And that's what the, the, the woman told me when we were discussing it. Um, I don't know how doctors know that. Okay. Um, sometimes I think like if they work for a big institution, like a big HMO or something like that, and they send out a memo to all the doctors saying, we are now advocating um, the, uh, the COVID vaccine. Uh, no doctor is going to go against that because the doctor's livelihood is on this, uh, at stake. Doctor's bonuses, the potential for being fired or not being promoted uh, if you don't toe the party line. And the bigger things get, the smaller the individual gets and the more power there is in saying no or controlling things. And again, this is the theme that's going to run through the entire podcast today. And I just wanted to uh, bring up the idea that there is no certainty in a lot of the things that we counsel. And when doctors say things to patients with a sense of certainty, um, we'll get to one of uh, the story of one of my twins where the doctor told her with absolute certainty that it's contraindicated to have a twin birth where the first twin is breech. But we'll get to that in a minute. I just wanna quickly go over the, um, some of the COVID uh, information. I, wa I wanna tell people that I, the evidence-based birth did a really good um, podcast. I think it was a podcast. No, it was, a, it, was a, it was an email or a handout on the latest information on, um, on COVID-19 vaccine. In pregnancy, a lot of you don't prescribe, uh, don't prescribe, don't subscribe to uh, evidence-based birth. So I did a summary of it. I made a video on Rumble, and you can find it. it's about 19 minutes long, and it's easy to find on my Rumble page. So check it out. Um, but ultimately, the 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 conclusion is that there is really no data um, on the safety of the vaccine. Uh, there's really no data on the efficacy of the vaccine at this point. It's only been in use for about, what, a month? So we really don't have the numbers to do that. Is it likely to be safe? Probably. Probably. Is it likely to work for some people? Yes, it is. Is it likely to cause problems for some people? Yes, it is. Can we predict ahead of time who those people are going to be? You could, if, if they've reacted to other vaccines, you'd have to be really careful. Although this is a different type of vaccine, which makes, again, making predictions almost impossible because from what I've understood, there's never been a messenger RNA vaccine that works like this before. So I don't know whether people who've had a vaccine reaction to a standard, say, um, MMR vaccine are going to react to this in the same way, but certainly there should be a caution taking, taken when thinking about this stuff. And it shouldn't be a blanket, sure, take it, it's safe, All right? Um, be discriminating, think individually. Um, I did an interview yesterday with a reporter from Bloomberg News 
and she's writing a story probably she said it won't be out for a week or two and um this the thing was on covid vaccine and specifically related to pregnancy and essentially every question she asked me i i gave her a good answer but i also i basically said there's no data and we don't know and i told her what i just told you is that each case should be individualized and people should be making their own decisions and uh, it shouldn't be mandated i mean it's a tough decision say you're a pregnant woman and you work in a healthcare situation uh you know and you're possibly you can't really not expose yourself to people should you get the vaccine uh i would never tell people yes or no i would i would say listen you, you have to look at the risk yourself i would say that probably i would not get it in the first trimester uh also the question came up about what about getting it and then getting pregnant within you know a few weeks or month after you get the vaccine is there a risk like the recommendation with rubella vaccine is to wait three months after the vaccine. And that's probably because the rubella vaccine, I think if I'm getting it right, and I don't wanna be inaccurate, is um, a live attenuated virus, which is essentially diff completely different from this vaccine. So I don't know that there's as significant a risk for getting it and then, oops, I got pregnant within a few months. But if I got the vaccine, and I was planning on getting pregnant, I would probably try to wait at least three months, just as a, a precaution. Why three? Why not three and a half? Why not four? <laughs> I'm falling into my own trap about coming up with like, you know, round numbers that seem to work. Uh, there's no, again, nobody knows. There is no data. So anybody that acts like they're the um, expert on this subject is not being truthful to you because they just don't know. They don't know. Um, okay. So, uh, last week we missed the podcast because I was at a twin birth and I, and I've had three twin births in the last two weeks and I'd like to really go through them. I'll talk about the one that was, that caused me to miss the podcast first. And this is a woman, uh, down in, uh, San Diego area and she had twins, die, die twins. And she went to 42 weeks. It's not a error in what I'm saying. She went to 42 weeks. Um, yeah, she was somebody who believed in astrology. She believed in the nature doing its thing and she did not want to intervene. And I've talked on previous podcasts about the, the scare tactics used to uh, make people have their twins induced at 37 at the latest 38 weeks. Um, but we do, we, we did biophysical profiles on her twice a week. I, we, you know, we encouraged, she did not want a vaginal exam. She did not want to be induced. She did not want to sweep. She did not want castor oil. She did not want anything. And the biophysical profiles continued to be great. And then finally, one morning, um, she broke her bag of waters. Finally, at 42, at 42 weeks, she broke her bag of waters. The fluid was clear. And she went into labor. And what's really interesting about her labor is that she had this very, very pendulous, pendulous belly. And... So she got to complete, it was her second pregnancy. She was a multiparous woman. She had a previous vaginal birth. So generally those things go really well. And my success rate with multiparous women with twins has been uh, all but one. So 98% success rate. She got to completely dilated. We did check her at that point, but um, she just was not, it was, the baby was not coming down in a proper way. And so the brilliant midwife, um, did something called an abdominal lift, which you guys probably know of. I had never seen it before, but it's called an abdominal lift and tuck. And it's not used, it's never, it's not described as a, um, 
um, uh, a procedure for twins, but it made perfect sense. And what she had the client do was stand up against a wall with the contraction. And then she would take the mother's belly and she would just push up and basically hold it up. And within three contractions, the baby was on the perineum, twin A. And then twin A came out and twin A came out weighing eight pounds, nine ounces and was fine initially. And then uh, twin B then was fine and uh, heart rate was fine, but then eventually had a uh, D cell down to 90, which stayed down. So we A-ROMed her, we tried to push, have her push, she couldn't push it out, put a vacuum on. And twin, and twin B's fluid had meconium in it, not, not heavy, but it had meconium in it. And twin B came out and weighed eight pounds, seven ounces. So exactly 17 pounds of baby inside of her. Um, and then everything, then some interesting things happened. About an hour and a half after birth, baby A began to be get, become tachypnic and, and began to desat. This is baby A, this is, we're 42 weeks, we're not premature. And the baby's respiratory rate was 100 and the, and the O2 sats were between 77 and 82. We gave it some O2 and some CPAP and it would go up to 100%. But as soon as we would take the O2 off, um, it would drop back down into the low 80s. So we ended up having to transfer that baby. That baby did fine. Um, they assumed that baby had some sort of RDS. Uh, they did not think a baby had, obviously didn't have meconium aspiration because there was no meconium and it didn't have pneumonia because they actually let the baby go home in two days. So um, it had some sort of RDS and why would a 42 week, I don't know. My initial thought was maybe the baby had a small uh, spontaneous pneumothorax, but that apparently wasn't true because I've seen that before. Uh, but that baby had vernix and clear amniotic fluid and was you know a paler color than the second baby, which came out with its head a little bit misshapen because of probably because of positioning and a little bit swollen because the two heads were right. It was vertex, vertex twin. It came out with meconium in the fluid, peeling skin. Interesting, I mean, they couldn't have looked more different coming from the same uterus and the same gestational time. And one looked 42 weeks, the other one looked normal term. And the one that looked normal term is the one that ended up having a breathing problem. I'm just putting I'm putting it out there as just an interesting story that that we honored this woman's request to wait till 42 weeks. I have to admit that I was internally uncomfortable about it and the only reason I was uncomfortable about it is because I was in unknown territory because there is no data on letting twins go that far. But I do trust the biophysical profile and the biophysical profile on both twins was great every time, twice a week. So I felt like, okay, we're just gonna wait, we're gonna wait. And and at some point, I don't know how much longer she would have waited on her own. I'm really thankful that uh, that she finally went into labor. Um, but that's it was a very interesting story since uh, in the, in the uh, so that's why I wasn't here last Wednesday. We didn't record a podcast last Wednesday and then Bliss went off to Hawaii, all right? I'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, let's see, we'll just briefly do uh, a, a woman who was having her first pregnancy with twins who got to 37 weeks, but twin B was growth restricted. And she also developed hypertension. And it was only, she was only like 36 and then five, we were following the baby, but by 37 and two, the baby was really falling off the growth curve, baby B. And um, 
So we ended up uh, transferring her to Dr. Chavira, our buddy, and he did everything he could to, to induce her to try to get her vaginal delivery. But uh, she eventually stalled out at five centimeters and she had a, a cesarean section. And I just want to double check the weight on baby B. So hang on one second. Um, yeah. So baby B at 37 weeks ended up weighing four pounds, 12 ounces. And the other baby was, I think, 510. So uh, there was, the, the, you know, they 412 is fairly small and it was very appropriate. Plus her blood pressures were really high. Um, she did not develop preeclampsia. She just had underlying hypertension. And there is a family history uh, of that. So, um, so she ended up getting the care that she did, that she needed, not the birth that she exactly wanted, but she ended up with a cesarean section, but knew that she needed it as opposed to what I'm going to talk about with twin birth number three, which was a lady who, uh, and a family that lived, uh, she was a gravid of four pair of three who'd already had vaginal delivery of one set of twins. So she had, let's see, one, two. She had four children in three pregnancies and she's pregnant again with another set of Dai twins. And uh, she lived in Sacramento and twin A was breech and the babies were an unstable lie. They were moving around all the time. And she really couldn't find anybody up there that was gonna guarantee her uh, the option of delivering vaginally. As a matter of fact, most people up there were gonna encourage her to have a cesarean section no matter the positions of all the babies, even though she'd already had three previous vaginal deliveries and one set of twins. So we met in October, she came down with her husband for a consult. And then she went back up to Sacramento and uh, she moved down here last week at 35 and a half weeks to stay at her grandma's house uh, in the valley. And the, I saw them for the first time since October on Saturday, this past Saturday, five, four days ago for a, uh, a consult in the office and did an ultrasound and baby A, they were both breech and baby A was on the right and it had its feet down and it was essentially a footling breech. It was not corded down there, but the, only, the feet were down. It was not a complete breech. It was in a very odd position. Um, and I told her, I said that we'll, we'll see you again um, on Thursday and we'll, hopefully the baby will have changed position by then. Well, Thursday's tomorrow. And I'm already telling you her birth story, so you get the you get the, uh, the point. So um, anyway, the, so she calls me two days later and says that she broke her, her water's leaking. And one of the things I had told her was that if she breaks her bag of water, she needs to call right away, and we probably need to have, you know she'll probably have to go to the hospital because she's essentially 35 weeks and six days, which is fine. I would do her at home, but I wasn't sure what was presenting, and I didn't want to waste time because it was her fourth vaginal delivery and it could have gone really, really quickly. And if I don't want a foot or cord or something to come out. So we sent her over to the local hospital. And when she got there, there was a lot of the no, no, no going on. Um, you know, she was, she was told that there's no way she could have a vaginal delivery. She was told that the first twin was breech. The second twin was head down that there, that a delivery that way is contraindicated that because the heads will get stuck. Now, you know, you know, if you followed me, you know that I wrote a paper on this uh, case report and you can find it at birthinginstincts.com under things I published um, where it's a very rare occurrence that the heads get stuck. But the idea that 
the physician told her with certainty that no, 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 you can't have a vaginal delivery because the heads will get stuck when you have a breech first twin when the second twin is, uh, is cephalic. Um, what is, is simply wrong, it's wrong. And they called me from the hospital, uh, the family did, and put me on speakerphone with a physician and the physician was talking. And I was sort of supportive of the idea that if they don't know how to do a breech delivery, it doesn't matter what position they're in. If first twins breech and they think you need a C-section, you should, you know, you're gonna have to have a C-section because they don't know what they're doing. But then I did say to the physician, I said, but you know, when you told her that, that the heads are gonna get stuck, that's actually not true. And I've written a paper on that. And while I was talking to her to that, apparently the, the, the nurse and the, the mom told me afterwards that the physician turned her back and walked out of the room. All right, so I'm on the phone. It's not FaceTime or anything, I'm just on the phone. And I'm talking and the doctor doesn't like the fact that I said that what she said wasn't true. And I didn't say it in a, in a confronting way or, a, or, 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 a, or a, a, a cynical way or anything. I just said, you know, I happen to know about this sort of thing and I'm an expert on this and that's not true. And she could not handle that. And she walked out of the room, which is rather immature. If I would just be blunt, let's call it out. It's very immature. So um, uh, it turns out that she was five centimeters. Both babies had beautifully reactive tracings. There were no D cells. And the baby was complete breach, uh, baby, baby A at this point. But baby A, which was the boy, there was a boy and a girl. Baby A was the boy, had always been on the right side, but now baby A was the boy on the left side, which is something I'd never seen before either. So I'd never seen twins go to 42 weeks and I'd never seen a baby switch sides, okay? And we knew which baby it was obviously because one was a boy and one was a girl. So it was easy to tell. Uh, so anyway, um, she says, I really don't want a cesarean section. Can I come to the birth? She was planning to go to the birth, a birth center in Thousand Oaks. Uh, that was where we were planning to deliver her um, had she got, you know, had we not been in this mess. And, and I said, she said, will you take care of me if I come? And I said, I will meet you there. And the midwife will meet you there. And if the baby A is, is in a good position, a good breach position, yeah, then I'll be happy to take care of you. And so she and her husband left. I suppose it was against medical advice. I don't exactly know. They were given lots of like fearful things about, well, you know, there's on the way to the hospital, there's a Kaiser on the road and you can stop here and stop there, you know, and, and you know, they were, you know, appropriately concerned. I mean, she was her fourth baby, but she did not want to have a C-section and she wasn't contracting that much. If she had been booming along, I would have not told her to leave either. Um, but I would, I, again, it's not what I want, it's what she wants. And so I would have said, yes, you can, and eventually that's what I said. Yes, I'm supporting the little guy. I'm not being no, 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 following these, these guidelines. So she came over, she got to the, she got there. We, we did check her. I wanted to see what I could feel. I could feel the feet in the vagina. She was about seven to eight centimeters, but there was a butt that was a little bit higher up. So the baby was in the complete breach presentation, the heart rates were fine. And so she labored and she eventually got to a point where she felt like pushing. She'd been on all fours, but now she was on her back and she liked it being better being on her back, which I found very commonly um, with, with a lot of women don't like being on all fours, um, even though that's the best position. And she started to push. And with the very first push, the cord, the cord came out. All right, so now we have a woman that's completely dilated. We have the feet in the vagina, they're not protruding yet. Um, and uh, the cord prolapses. So I went up and I grabbed the feet and I did a very, very easy breech extraction with, with, 
with twin A, came right out, no problem, uh, rotated, the arms were in the right position, didn't have to really do anything. And uh, baby A did fine, had APGARs, I think, of seven and nine. Um, baby B's heart rate was initially fine, as, uh, uh, but I, then I put the ultrasound machine on after a while and found that the baby was in a Actually, no, we didn't put the ultrasound machine on it. We first, we, we let her bond for probably about 10 minutes with baby baby A while we just monitored baby B. And then baby A's cord stopped pulsating and she started having contractions again. And I wanted to see the position of baby B. So I put the ultrasound on and it was odd as position. Like the head was in the right lower quadrant. The baby's butt was in the left lower quadrant. It, I guess you would call it a backup transverse lie, but it was really weird that I couldn't really tell what was presenting. I checked her vaginally. <clears throat> I could feel a, a hand is what I felt. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to break your bag of waters and go get baby B. And she said, okay, fine. And, um, and I did. And it was very uncomfortable for her. And I was literally up to here. And she, was, she did great. And she was, afterwards, I felt really bad about making her so uncomfortable. And she said, don't worry about it. I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm thankful. And baby B came out and had APGARs, I think, of six and nine. Um, and the placenta came out and there was no postpartum hemorrhage. And babies weighed, um, what did they weigh again? Oh, six, one and five, 15, which is great for 30, uh, six, 36 weeks on the nose because it was after midnight. So she's 36 weeks. And so she had breech, breech twins in a birthing center, 36 weeks, went home a few hours later. We saw her the next day, actually, and the twins were doing fine. And uh, they were a little, we could set and recognize a little jaundice on them. So we were made some suggestions and we're going to go back today, uh, not today, tomorrow. We're going to go back and check. And if we need the Billy lights, we have Billy lights and we'll give them Billy lights and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, um, things, again, the automatic response from people who don't know anything is to say no or whether they're, when they're frightened, when he gets back to Marianne Williamson's thing, it's fear overwhelms the, the love and feelings. And so you, you, you end up projecting your own fears on these people. I mean, I, mean, I understand that the, she didn't know how to do a breech vaginal delivery. And that to me is a, is a shame on the academic programs that are training residents these days. But to, to tell her falsehoods or to, or to scare her or to do those sorts of things was was completely completely. It's inappropriate. It's just inappropriate. I, I don't know what else to say. I don't know why um, anyone would want to practice obstetrics and be nervous all the time. All right. It's a. I mean, I think that many of you who practice at home. I mean, yeah, we have a healthy respect for the for the process, and we know that things can go wrong. But if you're scared every time you go to a birth, you really, we really should you really should find something else to do, <laughs> because it's a it's a terrible it's really a terrible way to live. Um, so we're running out of time. Uh, I'm sorry that I couldn't do questions today. Uh, I wanted to um, my uh, chiropractor friend Stanton Hom posted something that I thought would be a good way to end on a positive note. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to put it into the record because it's, you know, it's on his Instagram account, but, but my, you know, it's not going to get as much exposure as if we put it out there. So I just want to read this. So forgive me for reading from uh, my friend Stanton Ham. He says, 
If we collectively begin to truly honor mothers and birthing patients for this process of life, our world will change in one generation. And I don't just mean maternity leave, although that's a major factor. I mean the dehumanization of pregnancy and birth has been, a, been in play for centuries. Pregnancy and birth have become conditions to manage in a technocratic, patriarchal, and mechanistic model that leaves most moms and doctors riddled with trepidation, anxiety, and fear. And many mothers and babies unintentionally traumatized. When you start with the wrong premise that a birth <clears throat> is a condition to manage, that anything can go wrong at any moment, and you only have tests that and you only have tests that only rule out bad things, you begin and end with mothers and providers fearful. Some big truths are birth is inherent to our biology and life itself. Birth is normal, the greatest representation of beauty and brilliance. Birth is intuitive, holistic, and vitalistic, inborn and part of nature, not apart from it. If we started with normal and we did everything in our power to help optimize what's innate, miraculous, and normal for generations, there is no telling how quickly our world would change for the better. The world would never be under the level of oppression and tyranny we are today. We would have an inherent respect for the grandeur and preciousness of life. If mothers truly were affirmed daily, societally and culturally for the wisdom they have within their bodies, the world we are currently living, I could never exist or even be with thought. The world we are currently living could never exist or even be a thought in anyone's mind. And the belief in our babies' bodies marinating, steeping, and fermenting in the greatest form of love and compassion ever known. Would we ever think we'd have to artificially, chemically, toxically improve upon them? Would we even think we could? One generation, hire a midwife, be seen, heard and valued for your unique, your uniques. Have informed consent, deliver in an empowered, loving, delicious setting. Birth peacefully, powerfully, safely at home if you choose. One generation truly. Thank you, Stanton. It, it's beautifully said. And um, yeah, so thank you, you know, thank you all. I wanna, I wanna end with uh, uh, another Mike Rowe quote. I gave one recently about uh, Safety Third, but I heard another quote from him recently and it's and it essentially just a, a, a premise for, for life. And whether you're a medical student, a midwife, a, a clerk at a, at a grocery store, whatever you are, he always says, get there, get there five minutes early, all right? It's a very simple statement, but it says, you know, love what you do. If you start work at nine o'clock, get there at five to nine, all right? Why do we wanna get there right at nine or 9.01 or 9.02? Get there, get there a little early, all right? Show that you care, show that you love what you do. All right, so again, um, I hope this was an interesting hour for those of you. And thank you uh, right now, Bethany, Chelsea, Danny, Alicia, Elizabeth, Jennifer, Megan, a couple of you who were here and left. I, I really appreciate, um, oh, thanks, Bethany. Uh, I really appreciate your attention live. Uh, Bliss will be back next week. This has been Dr. Stu's podcast number 198. I think we're calling it the um, the the power of no. I think is what I'm calling it. What am I calling it? Oh, I forgot now. <laughs> uh, oh, there's no power in yes. I think that's what we're going to call it. No power in yes. You can find me at askdrstu at gmail.com. That's where you can send emails. Uh, we have a whole bunch of letters. I got a whole bunch of things, to, but I didn't want to do them without bliss today. I also wanted to talk a little bit about midwifery and whether to be licensed or unlicensed. I've had a bunch of requests to talk about that, but I'm going to leave that for 
for a, pro- a podcast when Bliss is with us. So well, until next time, um, stay well. Arrive five minutes early. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>